Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On December 13th, activists gathered in Monroe and Gina, Louisiana, to hold press conferences at both the Richwood and LaSalle detention facilities to protest abusive conditions. The conference was called to support the 53 women who courageously went on hunger strike on December 2nd and to call for an end to their abuse and demand that they be granted asylum. The detainees at Richwood and LaSalle are being denied medical treatment and are receiving nutrient-poor diets. Further, detainees in these facilities have been denied any visits from the outside, with COVID-19 protocols being cited as the reason. Louisiana currently holds the second-highest number of ICE detainees in the country, while also granting asylum at an abysmally low rate, only in 10% and 16% of cases compared to a national average of 42%. Many of these detention centers popped up in the void left by prison reforms in Louisiana, which reduced the prison population from 40,000 prisoners to only 27,000 prisoners. Corporations such as GEO, the world's largest private prison corporation, and LaSalle Corrections fill the void with more lucrative ICE contracts. With the number of border detentions hitting record numbers, the profit incentive for these capitalist vulture corporations to hold asylum seekers for extended period of time is strong. In breaking news, Shaka Shakur was severely beaten during a transfer from the Green Rock Correctional Center to the River North Correctional Center, both in Virginia. Shakur, a longtime Indiana prison rebel, was punitively moved to Virginia in 2019. Another prisoner reported this week's beating and passed along that Shakur has been denied medical care with the exception of a tetanus shot and a shower. We will have information for a solidarity call-in on our website. This week, our focus is still Russell Maroon Schotes. On December 17th, Russell Maroon Schotes passed away. In 1970, Schotes was convicted for the murder of a police officer in Pennsylvania and was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. On February 20th, 2014, Schotes was returned to the prison's general population after being held in solitary confinement for over 22 consecutive years. Schotes was granted compassionate release on October 26, 2021, based on being terminally ill. Today, we share part of an interview with Schotes, recorded on August 15, 1996, at State Correctional Institution Green in Pennsylvania. Here he is. So, in light of the fact that I was a model prisoner, I wanted to know, the courts wanted to know, my relatives wanted to know, people was concerned about me wanted to know, how come I could not be released from the isolation? And I was told each time that each institution, that there was no institution in the whole state system that they felt within their judgment that would be safe for me, but they was building a new institution, State Correctional Institution in Green. And once this place was built, shortly afterwards, I came here in January 95, was the understanding if you from the other institutions that I would be released, assuming that I maintained my good, you know, yeah. behavior record. 
Have you applied to be released to uh, general? Did you make? I've applied to be released to general population each of my 30 day reviews. They review me every 30 days. And each 30 day review that I attend, and I attend most of them, I ask the same thing for the record. But allow me to be released. However, on my first review that I came here, I asked to be released. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I would never be released here, at which time I brought up. Who told you, know, you that? I was told that by the deputy warden, Brian. He's the deputy warden of operations or something? Hey, he's the deputy warden of operations, mainly the top security man outside of the superintendent or the warden. Do you, is, is that unusual? Uh, that an inmate, that a, that a prisoner is told that they would never be released despite the fact that the, that the, the system, the Department of Corrections has a policy requiring objective review of, of, of the uh, inmate status. And, but he's told from the onset that this is basically a formality and he's never going to be released. Is that, is that unusual? Are there other inmates that are told that? Well, it's not unusual to me because I've heard a little bit of everything since I've been in prison. But for purposes of the law, it's highly unusual because even that is outside of the right parameters that they're given by all the laws and, the, and, and all the regulations that I'm familiar with. That well, there's no such thing as everything with any type of uh, in any status within the correctional system. Well, you know, people have the impression that in the United States that the prison system is run based on some type of legal criteria that the uh, employees of the prison system are constrained by rules, that there's regulations that inmates must follow, and that if inmates follow the necessary rules, they're afforded certain privileges and certain concessions. If they don't, they're punished. And you're, what you're saying, and what we hear you, what we hear you saying, is that in effect, except for the escape attempts that you have, which all are designed to thwart, uh, and that's the nature of prisons, to thwart escape attempts, that aside from that, you've been a model prisoner, but yet here you are in the maximum control unit within a maxi-maxi prison, handcuffed in a non-contact cage, uh, based on your history in this system and not on your actual conduct. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely the case. Do you think that's connected to, uh, to your politics and to why you came to prison for the Well, not only is it connected to my politics, but it goes a little beyond that. Uh, in fact, uh, I have been in the prisons with the top administrators of this prison when they weren't top administrators. In other words, I've seen them come up through the ranks because I've been here as long as most of them, you know, and more than, as long as any of them, more than most of them. Let's just put it that way. And formally, I've had contact with some of these top administrators. And in fact, I've had literally bodily, you know, uh, contact with some of these administrations. In fact, I escaped from one penitentiary and one of the administrators, uh, I was holding him hostage for a while. I didn't do any harm to him. I just didn't want him to get in the way of my attempt to leave the institution. Well, uh, at that time, he was not an administrator. You know, he was he was a low-ranking staff member. However, he's moved up through the ranks, and now he's an administrator. Well, I'm almost positive this weighs quite a bit on determining whether or not uh, he would ever allow me in the population. In fact, the party that I said told me I would never be released, Deputy Barnett, he is the individual that uh, in well, 1977, um, when I escaped from the institution, uh, 
you know, within the escape, uh, him and another number of other guards were taken hostage and they was put in a room. None of them was harmed. But when I come up here, it seemed like to me, when I discovered that he was the deputy, I seen a conflict of interest there, but it, they got me hostage now where I had them hostage for about five minutes. So people that have passed, yeah. so that passed right. on your on, on, uh, monthly on your status are people that you've had direct uh, uh, relationships with, and, um, and, and obviously there's a conflict of interest there. Right. What, what, what I wanted to ask you, though, was the status of your case now. Uh, you've been in jail um, uh, over two and a half decades. What is the status of your case now? The status of my case is that I'm serving two life sentences, uh, 19 and a half to 38 years, five to 10, one to two, and three and a half to seven. And all of these are running consecutive, which means that I have to finish each one, each sentence before I would begin another one. And Pennsylvania life is natural life. There's no years on life. The only way you can get rid of a life sentence within Pennsylvania, you have to be commuted. You have to get a commutation that's got to be signed directly from the governor. Uh, since I've been in this uh, system in this time, uh, outside of some juvenile years where I was in juvenile institutions, the commutations that were given out does not amount to my knowledge to a hundred prisoners. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of lifers over this 20 some years. So the commutation as a general rule is not really something that a life prisoner can look forward to. I don't know what the future holds. Because as I say, when I first come to prison, it was only 5,000 prisoners. And it was a relative smaller percentage of lifers then. Now there's thousands and thousands of lifers because there's thousands of more prisoners. So I don't know whether or not that, you know, these prisoners will be offered commutation. And as far as myself, I doubt very seriously whether I have any type of chance for any type of commutation from this governor who happens to be one of those supposedly tough on crime political governors or any other governor for the simple reason that my case originally is in relationship to the killing of a Philadelphia policeman. And it's highly unlikely in my way of thinking that they would release anybody on commutation who has got anything to do, you know, with the killing of, of laws. So my two lives and my other um, years that I got Although I constantly fight, and I've been fighting in 20-some years, uh, I doubt very seriously whether there's any possibility of me ever leaving this system through the court system. Well, you know, now, today, the issue of police brutality and, uh, and the treatment of, uh, of national minorities by the police uh, are once again in the news, and it's becoming an issue. Uh, like you said, you were convicted of, of, of a police uh, murder. Uh, do you think that your, your involvement in the Black Panther Party was the reason why you were convicted of this, as opposed to concrete evidence that you had anything to do with this? Well, possibly. Probably. I have numerous FBI files that I received through the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act that says right on the face of them that my case was targeted specifically by the then, uh, you know, ahead of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. My case, uh, I was mentioned by name 
I have at least close to 800, 800 pages of these files, and I could probably get thousands of pages, but I was not ever allowed access to them without the money, and I don't have the money to buy them. But I could see crystal clear by the files that I got that I was absolutely targeted by the Department of Justice through its Federal Bureau of Investigation director to give specific hands-on direction as to what should be done with my case. So the reason I say possibly is because I don't know just what all was done in relationship to my case and what, you know, my defense that I put forward. I don't know because I don't have access to these documents. But what I do have is people who, in other words, I don't have any federal charges, period. I never did have any federal charges. However, the director of the FBI, he got involved, of course, in my case because I was being sought on unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which is a federal case. But as soon as I was captured, that was dropped. So nominally, there was not supposed to be any type of uh, federal input. Nevertheless, I got these files where it shows that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, through its director, was into my case up to, I don't know how far it goes, but it goes beyond the point where I was arrested and I was being tried. So I don't know what's there. Are you familiar with um, with the Federal Bureau of Investigations program called uh, PRISAC, Prison Activist Program? Absolutely. Um, do you know that this was a national program in which they trained uh, state and local law Correctional uh, officials in, into uh, how to deal with political activists such as yourself. Do you think that you were targeted under this price act while you were in um, Pennsylvania custody? Pennsylvania? I couldn't say specific whether I was or not because I would have to have some documents to corroborate my ideas. But I do know this. I know that since the first day I've ever come in this system, outside of my attempting to liberate myself, and to go home by escape and any other means, I have always been treated differently, especially to give you, to give you, to give you a perfect example. In 1989, I was sitting in the State Correctional Institution in Dallas, which is about 300 and some odd miles northeast of here. Uh, I was in lockup at that time also because I was sent there from another institution, allegedly because the other institution was doing some repairs. And once I got there, I was locked up because the institution allegedly could not contain uh, my type of person. I was supposed to be too much of a escape, you know, escape risk. So I was pigeonholed into this institution until the other institution, which was a maximum security, had finished its repairs. That was in 1984. However, by 1989, after being in lockup at that institution for that reason, uh, a rebellion so-called riot happened at the, at the Camp Hill Institution, which is another institution hundreds of miles away. It's an institution that I had been at maybe uh, three weeks of my entire life, and I was only there just for a few minutes, maybe 10 years prior to that to go to court. Um, while sitting in the State Correctional Institution in Dallas, locked up in this whole Basically, you know, the same way that I am now, only being allowed out of my, you know, cell for exercise and to go to the shower. Uh, I was taken by the United States Marshals along with the prison guards out of there. Right after this riot or rebellion occurred at Camp Hill, without any type of warning, without any type of rationale, without anything, they came and got me and they handcuffed me and they suited me up 
and they took me to the United States Penitentiary at Lewisburg, at which time they classified me to go to the United States Penitentiary at Marion, Illinois. Now, and I asked them why would I go to this Marion, Illinois, and I was told at that time by the classification board at Lewisburg, federal penitentiary now, that I had been part of an arena leader of the riots that just occurred in Camp Hill. And of course, I told them that I hadn't been at Camp Hill and I, all they had to do was check the records and whatnot. And they said they had the records. And I was in these riots, and therefore, I was going to marry them. But in the meantime, I was going to the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, in order to await a spot at Marion. So I was put on a plane, I was flew all around the country. Eventually, I got to Leavenworth. Once I got to Leavenworth, I was given this same rationale, I was locked up in Leavenworth. In the meantime, I was able to contact my relatives and some other people um, who, was, who was willing to look into the record. Once they looked into the record and they was able to retrieve the records themselves, they forward the records to the United States Penitentiary and never were proving that I was not at Camp Hill. In fact, I was at Dallas and it destroyed their rationale about forwarding me to Marion. So they was forced to release me into the general population. That told me that somebody within the prison system was doing what I had seen them do on other occasions, which was to monitor me wherever I'm at. And irregardless of whether I'm doing rule infractions or whatever I'm doing, if there's any way that they could manipulate me into another situation, worse or whatever the case is, they would do it. Because again, I was hundreds of miles away from you. So, so does Pennsylvania have an interstate contract agreement with the They Pennsylvania? absolutely do. And, and so you were in federal custody for a period of time? I was in the federal custody for close to a year and a half. And then they transferred you back to- And then they transferred me back out of the federal custody because the funny thing happened when I was in the federal custody. Once they found out, and I got the documents, that they weren't lying. I was told that the documents said that I did all this, said that I was in the camp building all this sort of crap. Uh, so they were operating off of these documents. At least they had documents to say that they was operating off. However, um, their hand was forced behind this exposure that I was manipulated there under false pretenses. So they allowed me into the general population, which I stayed, which is the first time I've been in the general population since 1983. You didn't have any trouble while you were in general. I had absolutely no trouble at all. In fact, I was one of them so-called quote-unquote model prisons, which meant that I went to school, I went to work, I minded my business. So this is basically the only time you've been in general population was when they tried to get rid of you out of the state system and send you to the feds, and the feds found out that they were uh, bamboozled by the yes. state, and they put you in general population, Correct. and then the state took you back. And then the state, after about a year and a half, uh, I don't know, they called me back, and they put me on another plane, they missed you. and they returned me. So as soon as I was returned, I was immediately put back into put back in the hole. kept here for two basic reasons, I truly believe. And those are, one of them is personal vindictiveness on the part of some of the staff that I've had prior contact with. Number two is because I'm deemed by this same system, the overall system, not just state correctional institution in Green, but the old Pennsylvania Department of Correction. I'm deemed as someone 
who will always attempt to do something positive on the part of the prisoners. Because as I stated, I've become a pretty compass jailhouse lawyer, not because I thought that this would ever have me released from the prison system, because I don't really think it will. But I've become a compass jailhouse lawyer because I want I, I see that in order for me to stop the worst abuses that were occurring with myself and the other men who I was in sympathy with in the institution, I had to be able to put the long arm of the law on the people who were breaking the law. So I learned the law just specifically for that reason. So I'm a threat because not only am I um, within certain people's minds of potential escape risk, but I am also a threat because I've been, uh, I've come across as one who would not tolerate under no circumstances someone going against things that I know they're not supposed to go against. We're all supposed to go by the same rules. So there's sort of a leveling here. Although I'm a prisoner here, I got rules and you got rules too. So you follow the rules and I'll follow the rules. And then outside of that, we'll pursue whatever else we're pursuing. I'll pursue to try to, you know, uh, uh, be released from prison or to get out of prison and you pursue trying to keep me here and to do your job. But don't overstep them bounds because if you do, I'm going to put the whole weight of the law on you. So that's a threat to them because they like to step, overstep the bounds in the cases where they know, and in the cases where they don't know, then they overstep the bounds to ignorance. So, so it's obvious that um, that unless there's some type of public scrutiny around um, around the treatment uh, that you are going through and other political prisoners are going through, not much is going to be done about it. Not, not, not nothing that I know of. As you, what you see is what you get, yeah. and you're getting a little more than what is the reality. Because I said I'm usually not even in these type of clothing. This is the first time I've seen a shirt and a pair of pants since I. Yeah, I was getting ready to say, how did you press these? That shirt looks pretty sharp. Not only like this, I don't even wear shirts and pants. I wear a canvas jumpsuit with 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 blue lines and a white background, and it looked like something out of one of those concentration camps uh, in Nazi Germany. <laughs> First time I've seen anything like this. I'm assuming this is for the cameras and whatnot. I can't assume it's for anything else because I'm never getting access to nothing. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right about that. You know, um, you know, in, in, in trying to do the work around political prisoners, one of the things that, one of the problems that we encounter again and again um, is the incredulous uh, 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 attitude that people have when we tell them about cases like yours, where brothers and sisters, brothers who have been in prison over 25 years um, in the United States. Uh, most people don't have a history, understanding of this history, and they don't have an understanding that the political prisoners exist. I think that that's beginning to change somewhat. In, in, in your view, what is it that you think um, uh, people should be doing and need to be doing around uh, cases like yours and um, cases like Mumia's and cases like the New York Three. What is it you think that people out here should be trying to do? Well, my concern specifically in that arena is this. I'm not really concerned about myself or people like me for the simple reason that we collectively within this prison system and our overall communities within the country and the country in general, 
has much more pressing prison, uh, problems when it comes to prison than problems like mine. Of course, I'm being brutalized or whatnot, century and perceptual deprivation just by being kept within a box about the size of this room here for years on end. However, we have much, much more pressing situations in mind. We have the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. If our communities, if the, if, if, if the people who are aware of this, the people who are not aware of this, if something, if something is really not done in his case, uh, I suspect that the state will kill him in the not too distant future. Mumia Abu-Jamal has successfully exposed so, much, so many inconsistencies about the criminal justice system and about the overall uh, uh, situation that people find themselves in contact with the criminal justice system, which is uh, the blacks, other ethnics, and the, and the poor people, that he has become an extreme threat to the overall system. So a person like Mumia, he's in such, we're like in a giant bullseye, and he's in the center. And I'm way, I'm about eight rungs way out there someplace. So everybody's trying to get a bullseye. So they try to get people like him. Even outside of him, you have other people who I'm more concerned about personally before you get to people like me. And that's other people all around the country who are on death row. And these are men who I have to extrapolate from my own knowledge and my own experiences within this system where I've been locked up on death rows for years at a time with other men because of my security status, although I never had the death row. I've been locked up on death row with men that I know for a fact had no business being on death row, if nothing else, that some of these men were totally mentally incompetent, although I'm not any type of doctor, I don't hold myself out to be one, but I'm not no fool either. And I can see that no other men would have a reason to destroy these men because these men were not responsible for themselves, at least at that time. Not at the time of the crime, but at a possible time that they might possibly be destroyed by, you know, uh, capital punishment. These men are still within these institutions, within this Pennsylvania state system. I've been on death row with scores of men who are still on death row now throughout the state, many of them within this institution. But I know for a fact some of them were mentally incompetent, according to the law. Some other ones, it seemed highly likely to me that it's a good possibility that they did not receive fair trials. Them and the people who's on, on death row in general within the country, those are the type of people that I'm more concerned with before you get to a case like me, because I got a lot more breathing room than they do. I got a lot more time to think to plan and to attempt to use my own type of devices and rely on the source of universal power to bring some to bring some force that I'm not aware of to change the balance of things before things get to me. I'm not really concerned with myself as much as I'm concerned about these situations. This interview was originally aired on the People's Video Network and was conducted by Daruba bin Wahad. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. 
Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.